Welcome to the show. Of course, I'm Nikki Reitmeyer filling in for Jill Bennett. We've been hearing that parties are a big reason why we're seeing a spread of coronavirus in British Columbia. On Friday, we found out that there was going to be some new fines handed out to people who host or people who attend parties. And on Friday night, Victoria PD handed out the first fine in the province since these rules were instated. A guy was having a party at his apartment. The police show up and they give him a $2,300 fine. What happens? Well, the very next night, the police get another call to the same apartment. They show up. The same guy is holding a party at his place yet again the very next evening. Unbelievable. Joining us now to talk more about what happened this weekend in Victoria is Bona Soko, spokesperson for the Victoria Police Department. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, can you tell me in your own words what happened this weekend with this party? Because it seems almost too ridiculous to believe. You know, I have to tell you that uh, when people ask me how I'm doing today, I tell them I'm pretty disappointed. It's uh, honestly, it's been it's it's this is a very dubious distinction. So. We had information on Friday night that this party was going to be happening in the thousand block of Fort Street here in Victoria. And officers, we, the reality is that we're, our main goal is to prevent people being harmed. And so officers show up at this, at this apartment at seven o'clock in the evening and they remind the resident of their responsibilities under the COVID-19 safety protocols. Because we, 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 again, we'd had information that this party was going to be big. There's going to be lots of people. They go back at 10.30 after responding to different calls. In fact, they had been at a robbery call when they received information that there was yet another another party going on and that, in this case, it was loud enough to be causing a disturbance. And they got there. There's about 15 people there. So officers give them a warning and say, we don't want to come back. Time to end the party. Time to go home. They go off to, other, other, to, to some other calls. Some other officers uh, stay in the area. And they go back to the party. Now, this is a one-bedroom downtown apartment they get there and there's approximately 30 people inside wow it's so hot in there that the windows are sweating it's a one-bedroom apartment wow so three strikes are out as far as they're concerned based on the people they saw coming and going while they were there they estimate that between 40 and 60 people attended this party so uh officers uh they they issue the two thousand dollar violation uh under ticket for uh under section two of the COVID-related measures act um, for the contribution the contribution of a provincial health officer gathering uh, and events order. So it's a two section two under that. So $2,000 fine with a $300 victim surcharge and direct party attendees to go home. Party's over. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know about you, but if I, if I was at a party where someone got a $2,000 ticket, that party is over. No matter what's going on, that party is over. Yeah. Unfortunately, we get information that then very next night, there's another party going on. So officers arrive. Um, uh, this is in the early morning hours. It was very busy nights. So they get there and they discover a group of about 15 people in the same one-bedroom suite, not observing a safe physical distancing. They tell them it's time to go. And uh, most of the, at that point, I think they had gotten a message except for one member of the group who uh, was belligerent, uh, refused to cooperate, refused to leave. And under the new CRMA, well, that person was served a $200 violation ticket under section of the six, under section six, which is abusive or belligerent behavior, and served a that 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 $200 ticket comes with a $30 victim um, surcharge. However, that person was still belligerent and ended up getting 
arrested. Unbelievable. I, yeah. I, I'm speechless and I have a million questions all at the same time. I mean, this kind of behavior is just so beyond comprehension for someone to be so defiant that they were warned once, twice, three times by police before they showed up and wrote the guy this big fine that you think would have gotten the message across to him. But the fact mm. that he throws another party the next night is just, it's beyond comprehension. Uh, it is one of the most irresponsible things that, that I myself have seen in the time that I've been here. Um, and the reality is that the, I mean, this is, this is, this is, this is exactly what not to do. Um, the, the reality is that it's, it's not safe for anyone who's, who went to, who went to those, those parties. And you can, you can imagine that someone who will take those steps, someone who will define the orders or defy the orders in the way that they did, that's not someone who you can trust to know that they're, that, that they're keeping other people safe. They're simply not. It's it's very challenging for us, very challenging. I can hear the police sirens in the background right now where you're working. So it's an indication to me that you guys are busy. You guys are busy dealing with other calls of importance. For example, you even said that the police officers Mm -hmm. who ended up having to attend this party, they were dealing with a robbery call when they got phoned to go back to this party again. I'm sure for the officers on duty, this must be so frustrating because they have other stuff they'd rather be dealing with. Uh, well, a- a- absolutely. The, the rally is the same night that uh, that the first fray happened. We were dealing with an extremely uh, a- a stabbing that left someone with with potentially life threatening injuries at the time that they were discovered by an officer. Um, but the, it's not just the frustration. There's also the risk. Mm-hmm. So those officers that had to go in there, I mean, certainly our officers don PPE and they do what they can, but they are being unnecessarily exposed to risk, which means that when they go to their next call. They need to be thinking about how they can limit the risk to other innocent people. This kind of behavior is irresponsible, not just because it's someone showing, frankly, wanton disregard for the health and safety of of their friends and the people they invite to their party, but it can impact the entire community. I mean, you can imagine for, I I don't, I don't want to try to paint this as being, as being um, irresponsible young people, because I feel a little bit like Grandpa Simpson when when that (laughs) happens. But this, this is party of, of, you know, people in their later teenage years and younger adults. What, what did they go after the party? They went home. They went home to their parents. They went to their jobs. They went to their, to their families. And they've now put all of those people at risk. There was no contact tracing being done at that party. It's one of the, one of the reasons why, they, why that party was shut down. There's very clear provincial guidelines. There's five things you need to do if you're going to have a gathering that's 50 people or less. And those five things are quite simple. You need to first ensure that people can maintain their safe social distancing. You need to make sure that there is appropriate hand washing, hand sanitization, and washing facilities. You need to maintain, make, ensure that it's less than 50 people. And most importantly in that, of the four of the five, is you need to also be able to ensure that you have contact information for every single attendee, just like when you go to a restaurant and they're taking down your name and number now. Right. It's so that if something happens, you can quickly t- trace so you can test. And the next this party... That's definitely not going to happen. I know the ministry said in a statement that if violation tickets don't act as a deterrent, if there are repeat offenders, that police can recommend charges in relation to the offense and on conviction, judicial penalties of up to $10,000 may be levied. Do you think that in circumstances like this, or in this case specifically, something like that might occur? Well, you know, the reality is that a lot of people don't realize that we have a long period of time in order to conduct investigations for criminal matters. And 
Um, you know, we we never comment. We we never we never we're never able to. It's very rare that we're able to con- to confirm investigations going on or, or, or that sort of thing, especially in the midst of an investigation. But I think it's something that people need to consider. That I mean, I for me, a two thousand dollar fine would be that would certainly keep me from doing much of anything, let alone the social responsibility, let alone the the potential impact that I could cause to to friends, family, and people I don't know. But people need to be aware that yeah, there's potential criminal charges, and there are they the, there's large fines, there's jail time, there's lots of things that can happen. But what's what's really vital here is this is a very simple thing to avoid. The province's guidelines are very very clear, and it's not like you can't spend time with people that you care about. It's not that you can't get together. It's that, it's that the guidelines are in place to say, if you're going to gather, this is how to do it safely. And that's just so very important, especially right now. The, the, the irony is for this is that this is coming at a time where we're seeing increased um, confirmed cases in our community. Some of the confirmed cases in our community are, are blocks away from where this party was happening. Did the Victoria Police Department hand out any other fines this weekend outside of this event related to the to, to breaking those COVID-19 rules? Not that I'm aware of. I do know that we had calls for uh, for other disturbances and stuff that over the course of the week and moving into the weekend, and those were dealt with under bylaw and that sort of thing. But this was this; these are our first two. Well, hopefully, and hopefully our last two. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right. I mean, hopefully, this conversation, hopefully, news that these these tickets will be handed out, these fines will be handed out, is enough to deter other people in future from hosting parties if they've been thinking about doing it. I'm I'm curious though, from your experience, do you think that people will be receptive to changing their behavior based on either receiving one of these? fines or under the threat of receiving one of these fines? Do monetary fines work is really what I'm getting at. So what we see is it's the combination of, of, of really three factors. Awareness is really important. People need to know that they can't do this. I realize that on, it's at this point, some not being aware is a bit silly. Education, people seeing the potential impacts both to themselves and others. And then thirdly is that enforcement piece. And people need to know that we will bring enforcement when need be. In this case, and the first time it happened, there were three opportunities for people to walk away without fines, without enforcement. Officers attended three times. That's the warning. Warning's over now. It's time for people to, to really know this is not the time to have a party of 40 to 60 people in a one-bedroom apartment. Bonasoko spokesperson for the Victoria Police Department. Thank you so much for chatting with us. Hey, thank you very much for having me. Did you watch the Canucks game last night? It was pretty brutal to watch, and I was so excited for them through the first round of the playoffs. I'm still excited for them. I went to bed last night in the third period when it was 4 nothing. I woke up and the final score was 5 nothing in last night's game. Yeah, it was a little bit disappointing to say the least, but as I said, I remain hopeful that hopefully they learned a few lessons from last night's match, and they're going to use those lessons and apply them tomorrow night when they take on the Las Vegas Golden Knights once more. But whether or not you missed last night's game, if you've seen any of the games from the playoffs thus far, I think we can all agree that they have been really fast, really bold, really exciting hockey to watch, really, really aggressive hockey as well, particularly in last night's matchup. Now, a new study that examines rough play in hockey has been published in the Journal of Biomechanics. Lead author on that study is an SFU PhD candidate, Olivia Aguiar. And Olivia joins us now. Thank you so much. Hi. 
Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Your study, which has been deemed one of the most comprehensive studies of its kind, really examines the circumstances in which head impacts occur in hockey, correct? Yes, that's correct. So how did you go about conducting this study? What makes it so comprehensive? Yeah, I guess, well, we've been working with the SFU Men's University ice hockey team since 2014. So our data collection spanned five seasons or five years. Uh, So it was pretty comprehensive in that we spent a lot of time examining the team. Um, But I guess more importantly, we took a lot of uh, strategies to really get a feel for what's going on in these head head impact events. So we used a lot of cameras and we had a lot of volunteers. uh, But in a nutshell, we were able to capture um, just under 450 head impacts over uh, three seasons. And then with that video data, we were able to examine it with a questionnaire and probe out different characteristics of the head impact. So you examined the head impacts by reviewing camera footage, but you also talked to the players afterwards as well? No, not quite. That'll be hopefully in a future study, but Uh. for now we just solely objectively looked at the head impact events. Now, one thing I thought was really interesting from your study is that you examined 449 head impacts that were experienced by 37 players. I mean, that is a lot of head impacts for only 37 players to experience. Yes, that's right. I mean, it it kind of builds off of what you just mentioned with uh, hockey just being a very fast, Um, aggressive type sport Uh, whether these impacts are incidental or um, intentional is kind of another conversation but it's it kind of makes sense that we would expect a high frequency of these events to occur during gameplay and how often was a penalty called after a player experienced a big hit to the head yeah so for only 15 percent of the direct head impacts so this would have been for example when an opposing player would directly check um, one of the SFU players in the head, only about 15% of those were penalized. And often they were more resulting in a a minor, like like a roughing penalty, rather than um, a major misconduct. And if we're taking player safety into consideration, does that say anything about the need for potentially better rule enforcement or even rule modification? Right. I think... It's a bit controversial when it comes to rules. Oh, it certainly uh, is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I think the head contact rule as it stands is complex and a bit subjective in nature. Um, it puts a lot of, um, I guess, ownership on the refs to make sure that they can correctly judge the severity of the impact and whether it resulted in injury. And we know with at least uh, traumatic brain injuries and concussions, sometimes injury is not always apparent at that first impact. So. I think it puts a lot of the onus on them. And, of course, too, with the consequences of that call, it can cause quite an uproar. Um, but I do think the way that the rule is currently structured is a bit challenging to enforce. Um, so it might just suggest maybe simply calling all hits to the head or penalizing all hits to the head. But, again, but, uh, yeah, it's quite loaded to make a statement like that. Yeah, it certainly is. <laughs> and of course, if anyone wants to call our buzz line and weigh in, 604-331-BUZZ. <laughs> now, you examined the circumstances in which these head injuries are, were occurring. So what was sort of the number one or number two circumstances in which players were getting this head impact? Right. So if we looked at body-to-head impacts, we found that the hand was uh, twice as common as the shoulder or the elbow to strike the head. Uh, we did not examine the incidence of fights in these scenarios, um, but I could 
probably say that the hand-to-head impacts weren't always resulting from a fight. It could just be as what people would probably deem as being part of the game, so trying to kind of get rough up your opponent a bit, um, kind of send a message. So that was a big initial finding. And I, the second one would be if we looked at kind of body versus environmental head impacts where the environment is the glass or it's ice, uh, the incidence of those two were about the same. So I think a lot of people think with head impacts that it has to be something um, initially instigated by another player. And maybe the initial like shoulder-to-shoulder contact is, but oftentimes the head will strike the glass um, or some other aspect of the environment. So that was a really interesting finding that will hopefully inform um, how we make not just those player-to-player collisions safer, but also the player-to-environment or environmental collisions safer as well. Yeah, what does that say potentially about the need to modify the environment? You know, looking at how the boards or the glass can be modified to be safer for the players. Yeah, so specifically with the glass, I mean, you can imagine it's quite stiff and not always the most flexible. Um, There's a lot of different types of glass board arrangements out there, um, but not a lot of research published to date has kind of looked at how those different board arrangements um, could reduce head impact severity. So it's a, obviously it's a bit tricky to say, oh, if we modify the glass and the boards, we'll decrease head impact frequency. That won't be the case. But if we can at least reduce the severity of those really common uh, head impact events, that'll make the, the game much safer for the players. When you did this study that you know expanded over five years, when you finally put all this research together and, and published this, this article in the end, for you looking back, what was one of the more surprising findings? That's a good question. Yeah, I think we kind of touched on it in terms of the rules, like how low um, of a percentage of our head impacts captured were actually penalized. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, too, building off of what I just said, too, with the body and the environment, like, it's really, really easy to focus on um, collisions between players because that's kind of the most obvious, um, of course, with hockey being a very uh, contact sport-heavy type game. It's a physical um, sport. Yeah, exactly. It's like your eyes are kind of drawn to that, where your eyes are probably less drawn as to like the aftermath of that collision. So I thought just the fact that we saw um, the head not only just experiencing hits by an opposing player's body, but also by the environment was quite striking. That's interesting. And it sounds like there's a lot of room here for future research where you can explore this topic even deeper. For sure. Yeah. So it's, it's nice because we have kind of a firsthand painting of what's going on in the game. Um, So that can just provide us with some knowledge of what it is we're observing and seeing, but also this can be uh, data that then is used to inform our lab reconstruction so that we can go to the lab and recreate these common and or severe scenarios and examine those uh, events in much more detail. Olivia, my final question for you. Are you watching the Canucks right now? I am. Yes, of course. (laughs) You're cheering them on. 
Yeah, I wouldn't be much of a Vancouverite if I wasn't. (laughs) There you go. Olivia Aguiar, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Olivia is an SFU PhD candidate, and she's the lead author on a study that looked at impacts, particularly head impacts in hockey. And a shout out to Anne, who's listening to the show today, said she's listening via email while she tackles her laundry, which reminds me that I should probably deal with the clothes that have been sitting in my dryer for the past 12 hours or so. And it also got me thinking, about this distinct experience, this distinct laundry experience that we all seem to share in this province every summer, which is when you try to get the smell of campfire smoke out of your clothing, out of your hair. It usually takes a few washes before you can finally get rid of that smell. It reminded me as well of how about a month ago, I was supposed to go camping up at Jones Lake with a few friends and In case you've ever tried to go camping up at Jones Lake before and you did what I did, which is leave a little bit too late in the day, you of course find yourself aimlessly driving around trying to find a spot to camp, which in the end, we never actually found one. We had to go somewhere else, but that's a whole other story in itself. The essence of this story, though, is that when we were driving around, couldn't help but notice how much garbage was around Jones Lake. It was really, really disappointing to see. There was pop cans, there was beer cans, there was empty bags of chips, there was toilet paper, there was clothing. Just endless amounts of garbage from people who had gone camping there, obviously, and then decided that they were just going to leave all of their trash behind. Then I hear that in the community of Tofino, they're experiencing exactly the same thing. A big increase in garbage generated by people from within the community, as well as those who are visiting. Let's chat now with the mayor of Tofino, Jesse Osborne. Hi, Mayor Osborne. How are you doing? Hello, Nikki. I'm well, thanks. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I have to say, though, when I read about what was happening in Tofino, my blood was boiling mm-hmm. for you because... <sighs> It makes me crazy. Oh, it makes me yeah. <laughs> it makes me absolutely crazy yeah. when people litter, especially yeah. in such beautiful locations. Exactly. So, could you tell me what exactly is the problem that you're experiencing there? Well, we're seeing about a 30% increase in the amount of trash that's moving through the municipal system, and most of it is takeout containers. Coffee cups, boxes, things that food come in, pizza boxes, those kinds of things, and they're they're high volume, low weight, and they fill up the bins really quickly. And it's my understanding, too, that takeout containers now are designed to be recyclable. So it sounds like people aren't getting that message. It's really challenging to to set up a a COVID-friendly recycling system that is, you know, something that our staff can quickly deal with and, and safely deal with. So that's been another challenge for small municipalities like us. We have a recycling system here on the West Coast, but being remote farther away from centers like Nanaimo and Victoria makes it a little bit tougher to do everything that needs to be done to ship the recycling back. And so we're really counting on people to, as much as possible, minimize their use of disposables and and use reusable containers and, and reusable coffee mugs if they can. And another big issue that you guys have been facing is an influx in tourism. And of course, tourists bring garbage with them as well. Yeah, we've seen, um, we did not expect the level of visitation to return as strongly as it has. And so clearly British Columbians are heeding the call to get outside and enjoy the beautiful backyards of British Columbia. And uh, for the most part, we're very happy to see visitors return to Tofino. We know how happy they are to be here and how much they love this place. But unfortunately, we've had some behaviors that just 
They don't fit us. They don't fit our community. And frankly, I don't think they fit anywhere in the in the tourism landscape. And responsible travel means picking up after yourself and being courteous and respectful to all of the people around you. So to get down to the nitty gritty, what kind of bad behavior exactly have you been seeing in Tofino? Well, in some cases, we're seeing people who I think, you know, quite innocently on their part have arrived on the West Coast, not knowing they needed to have a reservation before they got here. It's really important to have your overnight accommodation booked ahead of time. So people arrive late. They arrive late in the evening. Sometimes they find that there is simply nowhere to be, nowhere to stay, nowhere to camp. And um, so they choose to find the end of a secluded road, or maybe they pitch their tent on the beach. And, you know, I think there is some tolerance for that to a point, but not when it involves using the outdoors as your washroom and leaving your litter behind. So I think that's the behavior that people are the most upset with is, is just seeing utter disregard for the, the, the environment, the people, the, everybody who, who is here trying to enjoy themselves in this place by, by actually leaving litter behind. It's really horrible. And being a coastal town, you're very familiar with beach parties, people going down to the beach, having fires, but that usually results in, unfortunately, people leaving their cans behind, people leaving their garbage behind as well. Yeah, I think, you know, fires are a part, beach fires and, and campfires are really part of that tradition of being camping and being outdoors. And it's really fantastic to see small groups of people or families, especially, you know, the kids are, are roasting marshmallows and that kind of a thing. But when alcohol gets involved, I think a lot of judgment gets lost and sometimes the fire gets too big. There's too many people. They're sitting too close together. And they choose to take their beer cans and throw them in the fire and the fire is left smoldering. They're burning driftwood. And, uh, you know, there's always a small amount of that that happens every year. But this year, it's just been unlike any other year. And we're sick and tired of it. Have you had concerns about large gatherings, of course, in violation of COVID-19 rules at local beaches or, or people, say, renting an Airbnb and throwing a big party there? very strong regulations on short-term rentals and we take a a maximum occupancy of six. We haven't seen a lot of issues with large groups staying in vacation rentals or in hotel rooms, certainly nothing like what we're hearing coming coming out of the media and, and the coverage from the Lower Mainland or Victoria, for example. For the most part, people are, are staying in relatively small groups. They're in their family pods. Um, but you do get some groups of, of folks that are, uh, you, you see the size of the group and they're walking down the beach and you wonder, wow, do you, do you guys all live together? Are you all related? And um, so I'm sure that's a part of part of the issue here, but it hasn't been as big of a problem as the actual behavior itself of, of littering and leaving beach fires. Oh, which again, it just makes me absolutely nuts when I see it, you know, especially a place that's as beautiful as Tofino for people to throw their trash on the ground and walk away is just for me, it's the height of ignorance. Well, you know, I think what's really important for every traveler to remember right now, while we're out recreating, we're enjoying ourselves, we're, we're, we're trying to be safe, but you're always a guest in somebody, other's, somebody else's home. So you are a guest in our community and we uh, expect you to behave a certain way. We welcome you to come and, and do all of the things safely and, responsi- and responsibly. But I think for anybody, it's just like thinking of going to visit your own grandmother. Would you leave litter in the middle of the living room? No, that's not the way it's done at your grandmother's house and it's certainly not the way it's done in Tofino. How are you guys doing as far as bylaw enforcement goes? I know the district's probably a little bit financially tight right now. Are you able to have enough bylaw officers out there patrolling to sort of satisfy your needs? 
Well, we are under-resourced in our bylaw department this year. There's no question about that. We made some decisions at the beginning of the pandemic around resourcing for this summer, uh, partly in response to concerns around property tax bills and, and being able to cover the essential services that we needed to, and also because we didn't have perfect information. We didn't have a crystal ball about what Tofino would look like in the middle of the summer. So we are quickly catching up, and we have posted and um, secured a new position and a, a new person who's come on board to help us with our bylaw, and we will hopefully uh, build and add another person soon. And that's important. That'll help us get through the rest of this summer. But we're already turning our minds to 2021 and what our bylaw department is going to look like, how we're going to work with the RCMP, how we liaise with Pacific Rim National Park Reserve and the park wardens that they have there. These are all really important positions. And unfortunately, fines and, and tickets are part of the big picture when it comes to achieving compliance with the rules that we've set out in this community of how we expect people to behave and to live with each other. That's right, because since July, there is a rule in place that if you're caught camping illegally, you can get slapped with a $200 fine. That's correct. Yeah, we've always had that in place. Um, But typically, the way enforcement works is there's education and often a a warning ticket will be written. But we've moved to a zero compliance or zero tolerance, pardon me, for that where we're just going straight to issuing tickets. So um, there are signs up. I know not everybody reads signs. But I think it's pretty understandable in a small community like this, you're not going to come and just insert yourself anywhere and do anything you want, but um, we will we will find you and we will ticket you. I'm really curious in this concept of whether or not monetary fines actually change behavior. I'm glad to see the province issuing more fines to people who are breaking COVID-19 rules. From your experience, though, do you find that there is a change in people's behavior, that they react to those monetary fines and they say, "Okay, I learned my lesson. I'm not going to do this again. Or are these people getting the message at all, regardless of the fines? Well, I I think that most people that are having encounters with RCMP or by law enforcement officers, most people are not aware of the rules. And so they become aware of the rules really quickly. Some people are apologetic and say, yeah, I'm sorry, I I didn't realize that or I didn't know I was doing the wrong thing or I did know I was doing the wrong thing and you've caught me. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um, It's really hard to find people after the fact often, and especially when it comes to things like abandoned beach fires and litter uh, you know, the, the camping is a little bit easier to find because there's actually a person there to talk to. Um, I don't think that most people are belligerent or, 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 or too, you know, I mean, obviously everybody's a little bit upset and angry and defensive sometimes when they're handed a ticket. And unfortunately, that is what it takes sometimes. Um, part of it for us is just getting the word out that we take this really seriously. We ask you to behave like a respectful human being when you're here in our community and if you don't, we'll, we'll find you and we'll find you and uh, you might choose to not come back again after an experience like that. And that's OK. Mayor Osborne, it's always a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thanks. Thanks a lot. That was Mayor Josie Osborne, the mayor of Tofino, talking about how much trash, how much garbage her community is dealing with. Some of it is from an increased use in takeout containers. More people are eating out due to the pandemic. But it's also because people are visiting Tofino, they're going camping, and they're not taking their garbage with them when they leave. As Mayor Osborne said, I I love this line, she said, treat our community like you're visiting your grandmother's house. Would you leave all your garbage in the middle of grandma's living room? No, you probably wouldn't. At least you shouldn't, anyways. How often do you dine out or order in takeout? 
Has that changed much since the pandemic began? I used to eat out a fair bit. I certainly do more take-in now. I go to the grocery store <laughs> now more as well. Andy.work did a survey of a thousand Canadians and they found out a few interesting things about people's dining habits as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as what concerns people have. So joining us now to talk more about these findings is Andy.work CMO Dan Snow. Dan, how did you conduct this survey and why did you conduct this survey? Hi, Nikki. Uh, we conducted this survey through a research house, and we, we basically pushed out a Google survey across Canada to ask people how their dining habits have changed, specifically surrounding eating out and being in environments that aren't their home and understanding how comfortable they are eating in those spaces and what are the different areas of the triggering areas that concern them when they're in those spaces as they're dining. Now, you looked at the nation as a whole, but you also looked province to province at what people's reactions are. And I thought it was interesting. You found that British Columbians have an opinion on on what they trust more, independent restaurants or chain restaurants. That's correct. So we saw almost half of British Columbians feel the safest place to eat above any other is an independent restaurant that's opposed to fast food restaurants or chain restaurants. They feel that privately owned establishments are the safest place for them to eat right now. And was there gender differences in those findings? Not so much in uh, the restaurant category, but where we see a very big difference when it comes to gender is we found that men, 77% of men, said that they would be comfortable eating in a food court in British Columbia, whereas only 23% of women said that they would be uh, comfortable eating in a food court. So that was where we saw the biggest gender split. I'm really surprised that there was such a vast gender difference when it comes to something like eating in a food court. But there was also gender differences on a national scale when you asked the question, you know, would you feel safe eating at a buffet? Yeah, interestingly enough, men also said that they would be more comfortable eating at a buffet. So what we see is men seem to be more comfortable going to a food station and retrieving their food as opposed to having someone bring it to them. And uh, interestingly enough, women see it the other way, where, where many people can approach a food station. They weren't so inclined to eat there as opposed to having, you know, one wait staff come bringing your meal. That was their level of comfort. What were some of the biggest concerns that women in particular seem to share? What we're seeing a lot of is uh, concerns about exposure to other patrons. So community spread through other diners. And the other concerns um, amongst women were actually lineups, the lineups to get into the restaurants themselves. And that was followed by uh, contamination of utensils and being uh, contamination of the washrooms. Interesting. Was there any other findings that really surprised you, particularly when it comes to gender differences? Uh, really, it was the buffet versus seated was the big was the big surprise that caught us out. Um, and so and what we're trying to do is really close that gap by actually giving people reporting systems so that every time they go to a restaurant, uh, you can go in and you can rate how safe you were. Uh, how safe you felt within that environment and what kind of safety precautions they were using within it. So that way, regardless of your male or female, you can check out a restaurant safety rating before you go. And that way you can understand 
how well they're adhering to safety guidelines and what the public is saying um, when it comes to adherence. Yeah, your app, I think, is a really interesting concept because it asks consumers to rate how safely they feel in the experiences that they're having. I I think that's a really, really fascinating concept. Have you had a pretty good response so far? We've actually just launched it this week, so we're very excited to watch the feedback come in. Where we've seen great successes, the Andy app actually started as a real-time line wait-up prediction tool. So when COVID first occurred, we knew that people were lining up for hours to get groceries, for hours to go to the pharmacy. Oh, yes, I remember. For hours to go to walk-in <laughs> clinics. Yeah. So what we did was we created... Uh, a free uh, iOS and Android app that will show you how many people. So it'll say 16 people are in line at Sobeys and it is a 20 minute wait. And so we saw success there and we started implementing this at patios uh, for, for patios and restaurants where you can log in and see your restaurant wait times and lineups. But what we were concerned about was we, we don't want to, we want to educate people on where they should go, not right. just because it's open, but because it's a safe environment for them to eat. So, so we gave, we've now implemented, it's a very simple five-star rating tool where after you go to a restaurant, you can simply rate, did they adhere to social distancing? Did they wear protective equipment? Right. Was Sounds there hand pretty sanitizer available? straightforward and giving you all that good information. Dan Snow, thank you so much for joining us. That was CMO Dan Snow of Andy.org. Have you noticed more people wearing Canucks jerseys lately? Maybe not so much on hot days, but Canucks t-shirts, Canucks baseball hats, even flying Canucks flags for from their car windows. Certainly not something that we would typically see in August, but man, has it been a lot of fun watching the Canucks in the playoffs. With the exception of last night's game, that was a bit brutal to watch, but otherwise I've been loving watching them in the playoffs. How have you been watching the games? For me, I usually have the same friend over. We make dinner, we watch the game together. It's a little bit more low-key than perhaps what I might have done in the past. Probably would have gone out to a bar and watched the game there or gotten together with a bunch of friends or family. You know, you invite everyone over to your living room. You have a fridge full of beers and you know a few bowls on the table of potato chips and everyone sits around in the garage or in the living room, watches the hockey game. Of course, everything is so much more different with this playoff run, isn't it? Not only is it being held in August, but it's being held in the middle of a pandemic where we're not allowed to associate with our friends, or I should say we're not supposed to associate with our friends and family in the same way that we might have in the past. And even if you were to go to a bar and watch the game now, I mean, gone are the days of being able to to high five and hug a stranger, cheers a stranger with your beer after the Canucks score a goal. So how are you engaging as a fan now when you watch the playoffs? And how is the Canucks organization bringing people together in a safe way to share that playoff experience? Chris Brumwell is the Vice President of Communications, Fan and Community Engagement with the Vancouver Canucks. Welcome to the program, Chris. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Now, first, I have to get your opinion on round one and, of course, the game last night. Well, round one, uh, I mean, it was so exciting. It, it, uh, I know that the Minnesota series didn't officially count as a playoff round, but, um, you know, the first round, the, I, for me, the first round was Minnesota, and, and coming through that was just so exciting. And then to watch uh, the team to come together and... Um, you know, beat the Stanley Cup champs mm-hmm. was was incredible, right? And and uh, what a quick turnaround! Sunday night and uh, last night's game obviously didn't go the way anybody would have wanted it to, but I guess we get to have a quick turnaround again and and get back at it tomorrow, and hopefully they'll 
these guys have, have bounced back after tough losses all year, and I expect they'll be really good tomorrow night. Yeah. I mean, we're all hoping for a better result tomorrow evening. All the fans who will be watching and the fans who have been gathering in ways that are a little bit different than usual to watch the games. And I'm sure from your perspective, the biggest difference that you guys have noticed is that there's no fans in the stands to engage with. Yeah, isn't it different? I mean, it's so, like normally, everybody knows this, it'd be, you know, mass gatherings of fans waving their towels and the energy you feel from that is just um, is just something really special. And um, we're sort of going through history here, right, And uh, with the pandemic. And so for us, it's been a real challenge, like many companies, to kind of re, I don't know if reinvent the right word, but just come at it a bit differently and try to connect with our fans in other ways. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of what we've done is, is focus on what we can do to help fans, like you said at the beginning there, celebrate from home in a unique way and then connect online as well. And, and um, so th- we've seen actually quite a bit of, of fan engagement that way. And, and uh, that's been, you know, I think when things come back to whatever normal looks like again, we'll have um, uh, sort of ramped that part of the fan engagement up to a new level. I mean, it is, I guess, somewhat refreshing that we're not having a conversation right now about how expensive tickets are to go see a game or the scalpers that have been snatching up all the tickets. Yeah, I mean, it's, I have to say, like, it's been so impressive how the league has put all this together. And, and uh, you know, you almost get used to watching games without the fans in the stands. And it's, of course, not the same. And it's nowhere near as exciting as when the Canucks fans are, are going with the towels. But We've tried to do a few things to bring hockey home, if you know what I mean. And, and so some of those traditions that people love uh, to have when they come to, to games in the playoffs or just, um, you know, on a, on a November night. So, um, you know, hot off the press, we just announced in the last uh, 90 minutes here that we're, you know, people love to do the 50-50, right, uh-huh. at our games. I love and to lose inter- the 50-50. Because <laughs> that's, <laughs> yeah. that's the only thing that happens for me. But I still like yeah. to play. Well, hopefully, maybe uh, if you buy tickets for the next one, this would be a good one because um, we're doing a, a two-game 50-50. So for games two and three, where we estimate we'll, we'll reach at least a million-dollar 50-50 jackpot wow. um, with a guarantee for the winner, hopefully it's you, of uh, <laughs> 500000 So uh, we don't have the volunteers walking up and down the aisle right now to sell tickets, but you can go online to canucks.com slash online 5050 and buy your tickets and and uh hopefully we raise you know just a ton of money for the canucks for kids fund and charities all over bc a great cause and for fans who want a bit more of that arena experience when they're watching the yeah. game is the sports bar live at rogers arena open yeah the sports bar live at rogers arena is open it's sort of the official destination to go if you want to watch uh our game up close and of course um it's you know the the Kanaka atmosphere in there is is uh, um, amazing, and so uh, you know if you if you want that experience, uh, you can still be at Rogers Arena for games, and uh, you know the, there's uh, I think there's more TVs in there than there is anywhere else in in uh, in town. Um, and then the other thing people can do if they if they can't you know if they they want to watch from home but they want a little taste of of what it's like to be in the arena. Um, you may have heard of Canucks Marketplace, which is sort of a, a one-stop shop, um, a drive-through experience at ice level at Rogers Arena where, where you can order online ahead of time and pick up all your favorite 
you know, arena foods or, or um, more extravagant foods too to bring home um, so you can watch and, and eat at home like hockey meal kits and, and uh, you know, your favorite hot dogs, everything from that to some of the, you know, the best restaurants in town like uh, Blue Water Cafe and, and Elisa. That's fantastic. Are you guys doing takeaway beers as well? Because for me, going to a hockey game, one of the key yeah, yeah key parts of the experience is drinking that beer that always seems so much stronger in the arena for some reason. <laughs> yes, so you can <laughs> you can definitely order your beer here and your wine or whatever you like, and we even have curbside pickup for your playoff hats or you know the, that you know those playoff um, uh, gear and, and towels that you might like as well. And what about a pop-up patio? I hear you guys are even doing a pop-up patio. Yeah, it's a bit of a, a fun thing we've we've started. Right now, it's at um, it's at Sports Bar, but uh, the playoff or sorry, pop-up patio. There's been a lot of this conversation during the pandemic about uh, patio patio season and and how a lot of the restaurants have had sort of that extra space, I guess you could say, for the patio. And again, something we wouldn't typically be talking about during hockey playoffs is patio season. Yeah, right. Um, so the pop-up patio has been at Sports Bar for the most part, and we're also looking at uh, having it um, appear around town. And so we've got a bit of that sort of, um, you know, we'll probably be unveiling a little bit more information um, in the next couple of days about how people can engage in that. But it's, you know, it's the, as we like to call it, it's Canada, Canada's tiniest sports bar. And, and uh, so hopefully there's a way fans can can book their spot a couple of people in there can socially or physically distance, I should say, and, and uh, just have a really kind of fun outdoor experience um, either where it pops up or, or at sports bar here at Rogers arena on game nights. And another way that you guys are engaging with fans is in keeping with the tradition that I remember from being young is the Canucks posters inside the Vancouver province. Yeah, the province is a, is a great partner. And on game days, you know, I remember being a kid too. And, and, uh, getting those posters of your favorite players and putting them up in your room or your office or anything like that. So yeah, fans can look to in the, in the province every game day and, and, and collect that poster uh, of their favorite player. I should, I suppose she, before I let you go, I should ask you to perhaps speak to Canucks fans for a moment, because, you know, we just heard in the news 15 minutes ago or so that Surrey RCMP were handing out fines this weekend to businesses that were violating some of these COVID-19 rules, but they also issued a warning to fans who were gathering at Scott and 72nd. They said a thousand people mm-hmm. gathered there on Friday night, and it's great to see people excited about the Canucks, but it's bad to see people not social distancing as we saw at that intersection on Friday night. Yeah, I mean, you said it. Like, it's so awesome to see the passion again and uh, love it. Absolutely love it. And I guess from our, our perspective, we just, you know, want to encourage people to, to cheer safely, celebrate safely, maintain that physical distance um, when you're watching our games and do it in small groups if you can and, and uh, just be smart out there. You know, the COVID-19 is, is still very much here and, and uh Hopefully the hopefully the Canucks run here gives a little bit of uh, you know distraction and some fun along the way and and um, we would just encourage people to maintain that physical distance and and watch in small groups whenever possible. Well, Chris, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Enjoy the game tomorrow.
Thanks. I absolutely will. Can't wait to watch it. And again, I have my fingers crossed. I think the guys are going to do well tomorrow night, or at least I'm, I'm hoping they do well tomorrow night. Chris Bromwell is the Vice President of Communications, Fan, and Community Engagement with the Vancouver Canucks, talking about the different ways that the Vancouver Canucks organization is engaging with fans. There's this obvious challenge of the COVID-19 pandemic, which means they can't have fans in the arena watching the game and, and cheering on the Canucks in a way that they typically may have done during the regular season or during great circumstances, like when the Canucks make it to the playoffs. And instead, they're trying a few different options as well, including that marketplace that Chris was talking about, uh, including having Sports Bar Live open, allowing you to buy arena food and take it home with you so you can watch the game. And of course, those Canucks posters in the Vancouver province that I think we all remember, especially when we were young, like Chris was saying. You remember grabbing that poster from the Vancouver province and hanging it up in your room or, you know, as you get older, hanging it up in your office as well. Well, The province has now moved to phase three of the Return to Sports Guidelines. Joining me to speak more about it is CEO of the CEO of Via Sports, Charlene Krepikovic. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. Absolutely. You must be so excited about this new this uh, n- new announcement that we're moving into phase three for sports. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, um, no, no one really understands the impact of, of COVID-19 and like like uh, other industries, sport too has had to adjust. And uh, in the early days, back in April, you know, we've went from you know from lots of activity down to zero activity, and then we introduced some um, early guidelines to get sport back playing through uh, what we call phase two guidelines. And those were uh, activities that focused on sort of individual skill development and individual drills, etc. So keeping um, participants safe, um, physically distanced, and establishing, um, you know, safety and, and cleaning protocols. But now that we're uh, in phase three as a province, um, we've been working, Via Sport has been working with the BC Centre of Disease Control, the Ministry of Tourism, Arts and Culture, um, health professionals, sport, uh, sport bodies, and, and recreation partners to really see how do we move forward now during this next phase um, in sort of this uh, where, where more activity is being introduced across our community. And so I'm very pleased that we were able to uh, publish these uh, new guidelines that, that outlines the parameters for this next phase. And uh, it has sort of three, three key uh, changes. Um, obviously, you know, as you increase activity um, in sport, um, you're going to see more contact, more contact intensity. And so we've tried to create some parameters to help guide sports uh, through this next phase. And we've introduced in the guidelines the notion of sport cohorts. Uh, we've seen that, uh, that term being used in the education um, sector, and right. so we are also using that as well. So, um, you know, introducing greater um, amount of activity, greater intensity of activity, and even contact in a cohort environment. That's the, the, the purpose there is to keep, um, you know, to, to slowly introduce activities and, and to keep uh, the circle small. Uh, the second um, sort of change in these guidelines uh, it relates to the introduction of, um, like, modified games and matches and even competitions, so within a cohort model. So uh, we've kind of established four levels of sport depending on the intensity and contact of each sport. So some sports are, you know, sort of individual sports, and and those can maintain physical distancing quite easily. But 
other sports, you know, as you sort of go up the intensity um, chart, um, you know, there, there's more and more contact. So uh, within each level, there's sort of recommendations for the, the size of the cohort and the, and the type of activities that's permitted um, within each, uh, each level. Right. So it sounds uh, like there's a fair bit of gray space. It's not just one size fits all for every sport. No, absolutely. You're right. That's correct. Um, the, you know, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of um, flexibility, uh, but there's parameters because we, you know, again, in consultation with um, the health experts, you know, we, we really want to be able to control um, <clears throat> the, the intensity and the contact um, of the people within the sport. So that's the whole notion behind the cohort so that, you know, people can play within a small league, and in the guidelines, it outlines how big the, the cohort can be. So for some sports, it's 100. For others, it's 50 or four teams. And for others, it's only 10 because of the amount of contact. So uh, the guidelines provide those that the, the parameters around that. And then now each sport will develop, you know, its sort of path forward. So we should see, um, you know, sport guidelines coming out from, you know, our partners at uh, Soccer BC and Tennis BC and Hockey BC, Badminton BC, Squash BC, all of the 70-plus sport organizations that we work with will produce their own sort of sport-specific plans because they're, you know, every sport is different and they need to think about how to best cluster um, their participants in these new cohorts. Right, and those plans, they need to be approved before the sport can move forward? Yeah, so um, every sport organization is governed by a board of directors. So uh, the sport will be working with their um, board of directors to um, get the plans approved, and then their sport-specific guidelines will be available for clubs. So, Nikki, the way amateur sport works in the province is um, typically there's a provincial governing body, and then they work with clubs and associations and leagues within that sport. And for the most part... Um, 800,000 members belong to these clubs and um, the the programs are delivered in the community by volunteers. So it's quite an army of of individuals that make sport happen in communities. And so um, every sport has sort of its own kind of structure and is now working within that structure to get that, you know, uh, to move those sports uh, in, in communities forward. And even if we're looking at activities outside of competition on the field, we're looking at training opportunities for athletes. That was limited in phase two, but now in phase three, I imagine there'll be more opportunities for training. That's right. So for high performance athletes, um, we've got some recommendations in the guidelines as as to how that might happen, even travel. So, um, you know, travel is permissible within this model for sport and it sort of depends how you organize your cohort. So within the cohort, you could have, um, you could organize by skill level, you could organize by age, you could organize by like region. So if you only have one team in one, one town, you might be able to organize your cohort with three adjoining towns and that's your cohort. So that there, there's now will be allowed, there would now will be allowed for greater competition and, and, um, uh, and, and modified games. I hope this does return in a safe way because, you know, now usually this time of year, cities around the province are buzzing with sport activity. Softball City in South Surrey normally buzzing with different tournaments that are occurring in August. Will we see some of that return to to play activity? Yeah, I mean, it's going to take a little bit of time to to get all of these plans in place, you know, across the province and all of the clubs and have volunteers all ready to go. 
but we will see, uh, you know, the slow introduction of more uh, play, more competition, you know, in, in the months, in the weeks and months ahead. Uh, and it will, Nikki, uh, vary from community to community uh, simply because, um, you know, not all the facilities are open in every community around the province. So some rinks are open, some aren't, some fields are open, some aren't, some pools are open, you know, some aren't. So it, it will depend um, community by community as to what sports are going to advance more quickly than others. But we will start to see more and more sport uh, return. Uh, but fundamentally, um, you know, the the key message around physical distancing still uh, is important. So while on the field of play, you know, we are allowing, you know, more activities. But when you're off the field of play, like, you know, in the dugout or on the bench or wherever you might be, we're still asking for everyone to be physically distanced. And if you can't be, then to please, you know, be considerate and, and wear a mask. So, you know, we still need those physical distancing parameters. We still need to have good uh, personal hygiene. We still need to think about other ways to reduce the transmission uh, of the virus. But hopefully now, you know, as we move forward, we can see a little bit more sport activity, but, you know, in a safe and um, sort of cautious uh, manner. Do you think that if case numbers increase in British Columbia, it becomes deemed too risky to continue with phase three and that this could get rolled back again? Uh, well, we are asking our sport organizations to be agile uh, because, you know, you just don't know what, what could happen in a community, uh, much like other sectors. Um, you know, you kind of take a few steps forward and then you may have to pause because of an outbreak in a specific community. So um, all of our sport organizations will have um, safety plans and protocols in place so that we can do contact, contact tracing and work with uh, local health authorities should an outbreak occur. Uh, but, you know, we take this very seriously. Sport is very instrumental in our communities. It offers, you know, mental health benefits, physical health benefits, uh, you know, a sense of community and participation. And so, you know, we don't want to rush into this. We want to do this carefully so that we can keep everyone safe. Charlene Krivikovich, thank you so much for joining us. You bet. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Charlene is the CEO of Via Sport, talking about how the province is moving to phase three of the return to sport guidelines. We've been talking a lot today about the new fines that are being enforced for people who are breaking COVID-19 social distancing rules, people who are throwing large parties. For example, I'm sure you've heard by now of that party that was held on Friday night in Victoria. A guy in a one-bedroom apartment throws a big party where 40 to 60 people attend. Police show up and after their third warning, they give the guy a ticket for 2300 bucks. The next night they get called back to the very same apartment because the very same guy is holding another party. This time, one of the party goers ended up getting a ticket. Then we heard the Surrey RCMP say that they gave four tickets out for $2,300 a piece. This past weekend as well, two different organizations, whether those were party hosts or restaurants or after-hours clubs, that were hosting large gatherings that were violating these rules as well. But there's another twist to this story. Some may suggest that these COVID-19 enforcement rules are infringing on people's rights. Joining us for that conversation now is Harshawa. Executive Director of the BC Civil Liberties Association. Harsha, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Do you think that there is merit to that argument that enforcement rules like these are infringing on people's rights? Well, I mean, most certainly it is very legitimate that people are concerned about 
COVID. We know our numbers are going up, and absolutely we need the province to be doing more um, and to really be taking action on getting our numbers back in control. Um, the thing that is, of course, of, uh, of concern and that we just really need to be cautious about is that many of these, um, of these enforcement laws, what they do require is police entering into private dwellings, right? So whether that's police entering into people's vacation homes, people, uh, police entering into people's homes. And without a doubt, that does engage the charter. Um, so in order for police to determine whether the number is more than the allowed amount, um, that means the police will need to be entering into people's private property, into their homes. And, you know, the courts have consistently found that people um, expect and there is a right to utmost privacy in people's homes. Um, and especially if police are conducting searches that are essentially administrative in nature, right? So that's not looking for uh, criminal offenses, it's administrative search, um, then even more so the charter is engaged. So I think, you know, we, we do need to be thoughtful about the fact that these new regulations and their enforcement very seriously engage people's charter rights. That's tricky territory, though, isn't it? Because in order for the police to protect others from the spread of COVID-19, which means cracking down on these types of parties, they have to enter people's homes in order to hand out these t- tickets and fines. Absolutely. And, you know, that might be something where if if and when the courts weigh in, that they do decide that it is justifiable and reasonable. But I do think that we need to be thoughtful about that. This is, as you said, this is, in fact, tricky territory um, and that this is something that very seriously does engage people's charter rights, which isn't to say um, that it will be found to be a charter violation, but that it is undoubtedly engaged people's charter rights where people have the right to privacy. And certainly this is brand new territory for law enforcement, COVID-19 enforcement rules. This ain't anything we've seen in the past. Harshawala, thank you so much. I wish we had more time for this conversation, but I appreciate your input nonetheless. Thank you. That was Harsha Walia, Executive Director of the BC Civil Liberties Association, asking the question, do COVID enforcement rules infringe on people's rights? If you've ever had your vehicle stolen before, then I'm sure this next story will frustrate you on a very personal level. A BC firefighter is now looking for his truck after it was stolen while he was busy fighting the Christie Mountain wildfire. I mean, oh, some people. CKNW contributor John Jang joins us to speak more about this story. I mean, this is just brutal stuff. Here's a guy, John, who was busy trying to fight a wildfire. Someone comes along and steals his pickup truck. Yeah, absolutely, Nikki. I mean, how frustrating. Can you imagine being in that position where you're putting your safety and your health on the line for the well-being of residents and you come back after a long, long weekend battling those fires and your car is missing? I mean, that's just heartbreaking, right? I'm frustrated for this guy. I think a lot of us are. are, And and it's very, very relatable because you're right. uh, He's certainly not the only victim of a car theft uh, in in a long time. I mean, I know plenty of my friends have had to suffer through something like this. But again, the caveat being they're not emergency services crews. So you would think that uh, good things happen to good people. Well, we know, unfortunately, that's not always the case. Uh, His name is Connor Callahan. He is the BC firefighter and he is the car theft victim. And he and I had a chance to talk. So I had to ask him, you know, what exactly was this past weekend like when he realized the car went missing? Yeah, I was there until Friday. My contract um, was BC, like my season ended on Friday because I'm going back to school. So yeah, I, I got back at on Friday morning at about 10 a.m. from night shift. I got picked up in Penticton and drove me back to Merritt where our base is. And uh, yeah, my car wasn't where I parked it. Oh man. So for anyone who wants to keep an eye out for Connor's vehicle, did he give a description of what it looks like? 
Yeah, absolutely. A very good description in case you're looking for it. Plus a little bit of context because this car has been in the family for quite a few years. Yeah, my dad bought it new in 2003 um, and I bought it off him in 2017. So it's kind of just been the family truck since then. Um, it's a 2003 Toyota Tundra. Um, it's kind of a dark blue color. There's a canopy on the back, a small light bar on the front. Um, it's got a gray tailgate that was replaced and just never painted it. So it's like a, a gray tailgate. And there was a Thule bike rack on the back. Obviously, all that could have changed by now. But yeah, and the, the license plate was JY3181. But that's probably changed as well. Okay, pretty specific vehicle, though. So keep your eyes open for a navy blue 2003 Toyota Tundra, gray tailgate stolen from the BC Wildfire parking lot in Merritt. And he had that Thule bike rack on the back. I know, I know he said, look, that could have changed by now. BC mm-hmm. license plate number JY3181. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's a very specific truck, like you're like you're saying. I think it's a, a really good job by him, sort of describing what the car looks like, the color, the details, like you mentioned there. And I asked him, you know, has there been an update? Have you heard from police? Uh, do we have a lead on where this car might be? And he said he did receive a phone call with an important development. I did have find my iPhone turned on on my uh, my laptop or my school bag was in the truck, so my laptop and iPad were in my backpack. And uh, it did have a a ping in Mission, B.C. Nothing's turned on since then, but I did get a call this morning from the police in Mission, B.C., and they were um, very helpful and enthusiastic to search around Mission for the vehicles. Hold on, so this story actually gets worse. Not only did Connor have his truck stolen, but he had some really expensive personal items from inside Mm -hmm. the vehicle stolen as well. Yeah, I mean, that's, that just makes it even worse, oh, right? Because I think we all do this too. Like we leave personal items b- behind in our cars and we never think it's going to happen to us that our car is going to get stolen. But now he has to replace the car maybe. He has to certainly replace all of his personal belongings. It's a really tough run for this guy who, again, is a BC firefighter and willingly puts his life on the line to protect us from those wildfires and all those other emergencies that we rec- uh, that we call on the, the firefighter crews to help us out with. Now, I did ask him, since you don't have a car right now, exactly what are you doing to get around town? Um, it's pretty awesome. They, a friend of my girlfriend's mom lent me a vehicle in the meantime. I think insurance is going to get me a rental car in the next few days. But uh, I've been doing okay for that. Luckily, there's some kind community members ready to help. I like hearing twists like that in a story where it sort of renews your faith in humanity a little bit. Someone has stepped forward that he knows, lent him a vehicle so he can get around town, especially in a story like this. It's so frustrating when you think of the worst in humans. Yes, uh, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, here's a guy who's uh, probably not feeling too great about what happened over the weekend, but it's a sign, a positive sign that there's a great network of people around him, family and friends who can lend out and, and, and give him a helping hand in a time like this. And when it comes to the community, he says that he's been surprised by all the support that he's been getting so far. Yeah, it's like it, it's really unfortunate, but people deal with this sort of thing every day. So I'm not really looking at my situation any differently. Um, but it's been really the community support has been kind of surreal. Um, I didn't expect any of that. Ah, oh, that's great. I'm glad that there's been that that great community support that I'm sure he's so thankful for. Exactly. And, you know, I asked him, like, hey, uh, we've got a pretty large audience here with 980ZKNW. If there's a message that maybe you want to share with people listening, uh, did you have anything for people that maybe want to get interested in helping find the car? And he had this to say. 
Not really. I, I appreciate everyone's wanting to help and, and all the people who have already helped so far, but please don't feel obligated. I, uh, I'll get through this just fine, I'm sure. Hey, that's kind of refreshing to hear too, isn't it? Because it just, this is just a sign of the, the day and age that we live in now. But usually when someone has an incident like this occur, right away a GoFundMe pops up or something to that effect. But it's, you know, it's kind of nice that he's going, yeah, you know what, don't worry about it. Uh, I'll get through it. Well, that's that's really the most impressive thing, right? Because if, I, I got to be honest, Nikki, if if it was my car being stolen and I'm the one being interviewed, I would be yelling, I'd be swearing, I'd be <laughs> far less cool than Connor is right now. So I don't understand. And, you know, maybe it has something to do with the fact that he is a firefighter, so he's used to dealing with really high, tense, stressful situations, and he handles it a lot better than me. But if I was in his shoes, I don't know if I'd be able to keep my cool. And yet that's exactly his response. He actually kind of discovered that more people that are reading and finding out about this story are actually being angry on his behalf because he just kind of shrugs it off here. Like he's he's a really cool guy in that sense. Yeah, that would be me too. I, I'm frustrated for him. He sounds so cool, calm and collected. I'm getting more upset for him than anything else. He kind of reminds me of my brother as well. You know, my brother drives a pickup truck. My brother a few years ago with the reserves was fighting wildfires in in the BC interior. So, you know, I, I hear his story and I think of people that I know and it would make me crazy if something like this happened to, you know, my brother, for example, a guy that I right. care about. You find out that, you know, their truck gets stolen while they're doing something trying to help our province. It would make me, oh, it would make me so angry. Well, exactly. And in, what I do like to believe about the people of the, the Lower Mainland and Greater Vancouver is that we're, we've got a great community. And when things like this happen, especially to people that don't deserve the bad luck that Connor Callahan's going through, we're going to rally together and we're going to try our best to make sure we're extra aware when we're on the roads, we're keeping an eye out. If we see something like this, you know, don't hesitate to maybe call the authorities right away. But Connor, too, it's funny, not only is he a BC firefighter, he mentioned he's a student. So I asked him, like, this obviously isn't easy for you, because if I remember correctly, going back to my days at BCIT, uh, not a lot of extra money to be spending on a brand new car. Uh, no, not uh, not much spare income. It seems so I'll go to tuition. <laughs> yeah, that's certainly a relatable experience, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, textbooks, uh, all, the pro all the program fees, the tuition, you know, that he was mentioning. He just... He's dealing with it the best way he can. And again, a, a huge kudos to him because he's dealing it in such a mature manner. And you can even listen to the tone of his voice. Like, it's just, it's like a regular old Monday for him right now. But again, his, his car is missing. His truck is missing. And he's asking if you do spot anything, if you have a lead, don't hesitate to, to call the right people. Call 911. Let them know because uh, he's obviously still looking for it. But as he sort of explained, hey, lots of people go through this. I'm just handling it the best way I can. Yeah, no kidding. Eh? Hey, John, have you ever had a vehicle broken into or a vehicle stolen before? Uh, knocking on wood right now, Nikki, because no, I have not. And uh, I really don't want to have to go through such a situation. But maybe if it ever happens to me, I'll just think back and say, you know what? If Connor Callahan, that BC firefighter, could handle it so well, I'm going to try to do my best to follow suit. <laughs> John Jang, thank you so much for the conversation. You got it. Thanks a lot, Nikki. And again, keep an eye open for Connor Callahan's stolen truck if you can. He said he thinks it might be in the Mission area, but it was stolen closer to Merritt. It was actually stolen out of the BC Wildfire parking lot in Merritt. It's a navy blue 2003 Toyota Tundra. The license plate, it's a BC license plate. It's JY3181. And he said the vehicle's a little bit unique because it has or had a Thule bike rack on the back of it. And the tailgate is gray. So while the truck is navy blue, the tailgate is gray, making it a little 
little bit more distinct. And of course, if you see that, then you should call your local police and hopefully we can get Connor's truck back again. But yeah, as John said, a guy pretty cool, calm and collected considering what bad fortune he's just come across. Joining us to talk about large gatherings that have been happening at the intersection of Scott Road and 72nd is Joni Sadu, our CMP Media Relations Officer for the City of Surrey. Joni, thank you so much for joining us. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me. So on Friday, I can't believe it. There was, what, a thousand people who turned up at the intersection of Scott and 72nd? Yeah, so we did anticipate that there would be a, a crowd there, um, especially if the Canucks won. And when they did, which was great news for all of us Canucks fans, um, we we anticipated there would be a gathering. We were surprised at the number of people that were there, um, approximately about a thousand people gathered. And um, yes, we kind of shifted our focus at that point to then uh, just focus on the safety of pedestrians and traffic in the area. Yeah, you know, it's funny. We spoke to the Canucks organization earlier in the show and they said the same thing too. It's great. The Canucks are winning. You know, we're all happy. We're all excited. We're pleased to see them doing well. However, people have to be smart about how they're celebrating and a gathering of a thousand people is not a smart way to do it. Absolutely. Yeah, people do need to. I mean, it's great. We all want to celebrate the success of our local team. Um, You know, we at the Surrey RCMP were fans, Connects fans as well. Uh, But we just urge people to to celebrate in a responsible way. I mean, everybody knows that you know we're in the middle of a pandemic right now, so it's incredibly dangerous going um, to these celebrations and participating in these large gatherings. So we just ask people, you know, continue your celebrations, but do so in a creative way that where you're not putting people at risk. So celebrate from home um, or virtually. There were some tickets that were handed out on Friday night when a thousand people gathered at the intersection. Now, those weren't tickets related to social distancing, but what were they related to? Um, no, they weren't related to social distancing. Our officers, you know, when they saw the crowd was so large, their primary focus then shifted to ensuring the safety of pedestrians and um, and traffic in the area. Um, so the issue, the tickets that were issued, there were seven tickets issued uh, for seatbelt violations, and uh, that was as a result of people hanging out of their windows and sunroofs and just behaving in an unsafe manner. In future, though, could we see tickets being handed out to people at that intersection if they gather again like they did on Friday? Absolutely. Yeah. So our primary focus has always been to educate people on what the public health orders are. Um, we really you know, want to urge the public to comply with the orders and, you know, everybody has a responsibility to do so. But, you know, we're seeing that people aren't complying. And if, you know, this continues, then we will um, issue tickets. And what would that ticket look like? Um, So the tickets will be um, anywhere from, uh, so in a a situation where people are gathering uh, in a large area, it it will be for refusing to disperse at an event or, or gathering after being instructed to do so by an enforcement official. And the fine for that is actually $200. Now, some larger fines were handed out this past weekend to businesses or event organizers who were not following these COVID-19 rules. Can you tell me a bit about what those tickets were all about? Yeah, so over the past weekend, our uh, the Surrey RCMP COVID-19 Compliance and Enforcement Team, they issued... Um, $2,300 fines to uh, one restaurant, two events um, and banquet spaces, and then one after-hours club. And each of these places, they actually were sub- subject to warnings uh, by our uh, COVID-19 compliance and enforcement team in the past. 
Now, a CKW listener named Henry sent me an email and he asked, and what happens if a person just refuses to pay these fines? How will this be enforced? You know, we are still at the early stages. It was just only Friday when the Minister of Public Safety and the Solicitor General um, announced um, the update to the public health orders and announced our ability, the law enforcement's ability to issue tickets. So, you know, there is going to be a method and um, I believe it would be similar to um, the method that is followed with traffic tickets. But, you know, it's something that is fairly new and we're working through it. So as that information becomes available, we'll certainly be letting everybody know. Well, thank you so much and stay safe out there. Thank you. That is Joni Sadu, Surrey RCMP Media Relations Officer, talking about those large gatherings that have been happening at the intersection of Scott and 72nd, as well as some other gatherings that have been problematic around the city of Surrey in this day and age of COVID-19.